It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. You know, I couldn't be more excited to talk with my guest today. Joining me, one of my all-time favorite sales experts, Jeffrey Gittimer. Jeffrey, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Andy, how are you? Great, great. So, yeah, maybe this is unnecessary, but uh, in the off case somebody hasn't heard about you, take a minute and introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Jeffrey Gittimer. I am uh, uh, grew up in Philadelphia, sold in New York City for cold call for three years. I don't know whether people understand cold calling in New York City, but up yours is a greeting. <laughs> and and uh, I currently reside in Charlotte, North Carolina. I've written 13 books on the science of personal development and sales, one of which is The Little Red Book of Selling, the all-time, all-time best-selling sales book. And a book everybody should read. And own. They should actually buy it and then read it. Don't borrow it from somebody else. Um, no, I go to the library. Seriously? Seriously? The library is for little kids who want to buy a book and read it and, and give it back. Books are for reference, not just for reading. So if you're going to buy a book, you can refer to it again and again. I don't think, you know, if somebody goes to the library and gets Think and Grow Rich, and you read it one time and you go, yeah, I read that book, you don't get it. You read Think and Grow Rich 10 times, and then you kind of get it. Right. So that's... So what did you sell when you first got started? Um, I actually sold all my own stuff. I manufactured leisure furniture, uh, better known in the furniture world as beanbag chairs. And I sold them. I, I, I bought two, and I tried to buy 100. And the factory wouldn't sell it to me because I wasn't, quote, a store. So I told the guy to go screw himself, and I'd make them myself, and I did. And I began, I, I would go to Bloomingdale's in New York City, bust into the furniture store buyers without any kind of appointment and say, sit in this. And the guy would go, wow, these are really cool. And I go, right, here's the order form, fill it out. And that was how I closed the sale. So you're carrying a beanbag chair with you? A huge one. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's like a bull in a china shop kind of thing. You yeah, know, I was going to say, literally, in that case. But it, was, it was years ago, and it was in a time when you could actually make a cold call without having to go through licensing and pictures and do you have an appointment and what's the extension number. It's very difficult, since 9-11 especially, to get into any office building in New York City. Even the crappy ones now have a, an armed guard. Yeah, they do. So, I mean, is that, you think, somewhat responsible for the evolution of the way inside sales is evolving? Uh, yes, it is. Of course, the, you know, the only way, that, well, people erroneously consider inside sales telephoning, which I don't. Um, I think that might be part of the mix. But certainly, if I can connect with somebody on LinkedIn or if I can get somebody to follow me on Twitter, that's a hell of a lot more powerful than me trying to find a guy who's in charge of the advertising department. And I want them to find me. Right. And so, I, so, yes, inside sales has taken over, but social selling and inside selling are, have to be very harmonious in today's world to make a genuine contact. Otherwise, you're cold calling. Right. And it seems like most inside sales these days is focused on being sort of the, what I call the triumph of quantity over quality. 
Um, yes, I, I totally agree with that. I, I think that the, the, the triumph, though, is um, by company. Yes. Many times they have to do 100 dials in, a, in an afternoon, and, and many times they only have to do seven. And sometimes the customer will call them. And for me, I, I'm a value out guy. I, I don't add value. I give value. And as a result of that, my content generates leads. For example, did I call you for this interview or did you call me? Well, I reached out to you. Right. I don't call anybody. I'm in sales and I make no sales calls. And that's been the case for the last 20 something years. So what do you say to the people, though, that, that say that, you know, hey, the only way, the only way to develop prospects is to cold call, is to prospect? I think the only way to make contact is by cold calling. If your manager says that, then have him or her sit down next to you, make 100 with you, and let's see who can win. I think if the manager actually has to make the cold calls themselves, they'll quit doing it in three seconds. And what will they do instead? They'll figure out a better way, a smarter way. They'll start to at least develop a, a LinkedIn strategy, a Twitter strategy, a YouTube strategy. They'll start using voice of customer. They'll start using um, any kind of testimonial on Facebook that they can possibly get. They'll talk about real stories, and they'll try to make connections so that you can you know, have people buy rather than be sold. Yeah, which I mean, is your, your headline. I mean, it seems like the... the uh just the sort of prevailing ethos that seems to be so oriented towards, you know, now the tools and the technology exist to be able to have your business development reps, your sales development reps, you know, blast customers with more and more emails. You know, I fear that in some of these markets, what's happening is they're sort of burning out the customers. You know, I've gotten a couple of emails, you know, blind emails over the course of the last few weeks, and I delete them rather than put them into spam just to be kind to the other people. And then I get a follow-up email from the same jackass saying, you know, I didn't really know if I just wanted to make sure I followed up to make sure you got like, dude, I get the email. I didn't follow up with you. Therefore, leave me alone. But they'll do it a third time. Well, you're in the cadence. The sequence could be seven touches in seven days. Yeah, but uh, I, I just, I'm not happy with that because there's never any value in it. They're not telling me five things that I can do to make my business better. They're trying to sell me their service. Big mistake. See, if I, and, and I look at it very simply. If I cold call a business and I go, I actually walk in face to face and I say, here's my brochure. Can you please give that to the guy that runs the company? Or I walk in and I say, Here's a sales lead that I found for you. I don't know who to give it to. Can you please give it to the president and let him distribute it? Now, do that every week for a month or two months. You can either give a brochure or you can give a lead. Who do you think the CEO is going to see after the eighth phone call or the eighth drop-in? The one who the, added value. The lead guy or the brochure guy. Yeah, the one that added value, absolutely. Right. So, and that's an easy way for me to be able to explain it. It doesn't have to go that far, but it does have to be something that the other guy perceives as valuable to him or her. Otherwise, there is no value. 
companies have what's called a value prop, which is typically a bunch of bullshit about what they do for the customer after the customer has bought. I, that's not what I want. It's really not what I want. I, I don't. I don't want. You know, somebody. If if you you're going to get more phone calls if you use the yellow pages. Okay, but after the phone rings, then what do I do? How come the yellow pages guy never told me how to make a sale once the customer calls? And the answer is because they didn't care, <laughs> really. <Right. laughs> Absolutely. And I think now my yellow pages sales guy is a waiter at Shoney's. But you know, I mean, the, the, those businesses come and go. So, I think he works. I think I think the guy that sold BlackBerry was is the host of the restaurant, and the other guy is just the waiter. <laughs> so let's let's spend a second on the word value because I mean you bring it up again. It seems like it's in danger becoming overused because you said the value the, the value proposition really about what happens after the sale. And, and the answer is that's in the mind of the customer, right? If they if you think it's valuable as a salesperson. And I don't think it's valuable as a customer. It ain't valuable. It's plain and simple. And a lot of people think, well, we, we've added a year to the warranty as a value add. Seriously? I don't care about that. I want to know what the value now is. I want to know what the value in advance is. Why don't you tell me how I can use your product to, to be more productive or be more profitable or have better morale inside the place. That's what I care about. And communicate that in a way that doesn't take too much of my time. Right. And, and, but I, I want to do it in a way where, where I can get it. I'm, let me give you a specific example. A kid comes in to sell a copy machine that makes 21.5 copies a minute. I don't care about that. I care about what happens if the machine breaks down on Friday afternoon. They all make copies. And I don't. I have never been able to differentiate the difference between twenty a minute and twenty-two a minute. I don't care. That that's not a feature to me that I care about. What I care about is what's the maintenance like. How often does it break down? What do your customers say about your service response time? That's what I care about. Don't you? Yeah. I mean, you care that you can make use of the equipment that you've invested in. Exactly. That's it. And every minute that you can't make use of it that you invest in it, it's money down the drain. So I, I look at it from the perspective of, okay, what am I going to do to be able to enhance the salesperson's ability to be a true value provider? That's what I want. And for companies that sell equipment, the obvious value is safety and training. And for companies that sell a service, the, the obvious value is Morale, productivity, profitability. So I, I'm, I don't get why they don't get this. So here, this is the test, Andy. This is the best test. Everybody who's listening to this, take your brochure out and a red Sharpie and circle everything on the brochure that the customer might perceive as valuable. And I will guarantee you that the pen cap never comes off. That's basically all I can tell you. So why are people still, why are companies still persisting in that? I mean, one thing that gets me is that, that you know, we have to see this sort of continuation of just sort of thoughtless action. Is that, you know, people don't move in deliberate ways and mindful ways and thoughtful ways to the point you made about 
putting themselves in the customer shoe to say, does this have value to the customer? If it doesn't, why am I wasting their time talking to them about it? Correct. That's correct. And the sales guy, he's has a quota and the boss has a foot up his butt to get to the quota and I need you to make 28 calls a day or 72 calls a day or 100 calls a day or call 20 people that have bought and 20 people. They, they all have a numbers formula rather than a value formula. It seems to drive results. I mean, I was looking at the, uh, the research report that Altify just put out and, you know, close rates in business to business and enterprise level. It's like 21% of qualified opportunities are actually closing that you're winning. Uh, that seems like, a, it seems really out of whack. If you're spending that much time and you only close 20% of your deals? I got news for you. I have an 18-year-old granddaughter, and she could close 20% of the sales. No training needed. Two out of 10 10 people are going to buy, even if you suck. (laughs) Right. So what's going on? Why isn't... I mean, you look in the SaaS industry. I was at a conference in the SaaS industry, and they're talking about industry-wide close rates, like at 23%. Yeah, here, applying all the latest technology, supposedly, you know, best and brightest, smartest people. Hold on a minute. And the 23% is probably a bullshit number. (laughs) Probably, yes. But let's just take it as a number because it's still low. Well, I mean, salespeople fill out their call reports on Sunday night while they're watching a TV show. Do you think they're telling the truth or do you think they exaggerate just a little bit? So let's get to the the real question, though. Why, Why are close rates still so low? Because salespeople don't have enough relationship quality with their prospective customer. The customer is buying, literally, they're buying transactionally rather than emotionally. You know, it goes through, it goes through some kind of a procurement department, and there has to be the product insurance. That, there's no, nobody calls on the CEO to get somebody to buy. That's the only place I've ever sold. Everybody else is a pain in the ass. So what you're saying is that no one's selling to the people who have an emotional stake right. in making the right decision. That is correct. They have a logical stake, and if they can beat me down on the price, they think they've done their job. Not the fact that the people will hate it like hell when they get it. Not the fact that, that the productivity or morale is going to go down when they get it. But the fact that they saved a nickel. Yeah, I, mean, I agree that's really an issue because... You know, my training, what I did, years selling large, complex, multi-million dollar systems, is you always had to find the person that had the most at stake at it. Right. If you can find that person, it, it becomes emotional. If not, it's logical. Yeah. And people make, you know, I love the expression, people make emotional decisions for logical reasons, meaning they lead with the emotions, but they fill in the rationalizations with logical after they've made that emotional decision. Right. If you want a shorter version, is people decide emotionally and then justify logically. Right. Um... So I want to run by you. I mean, you you had brought up when we were talking before the show about um, JD Power Customer Satisfaction mm-hmm. Awards. Mm-hmm. You wanted to make a point about that. Tell me what you wanted to get into. Do you think the person that wins them deserves them? No, I think they probably pay the most for it. Right. Well, the bogusness of the JD Power Customer Satisfaction Award is they give them to airlines. <laughs> right. Name one that deserves it, right? What category possibly be? What could they possibly carve out that would be a consistent winner? You know, they're they they're the best of a poor lot. They're they're I got the award. Least shitty. <laughs> 
Yeah, who would win that for you? Uh, they'd all win. I think they're 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 pretty much the same. And it's not good or bad. It's inconsistent. Sometimes I, you know, I fly American here in, in Charlotte. Used to fly U.S. Airways. Um, but they're not good. They're not bad. They're just inconsistent. Sometimes people are grouchy. Sometimes people are nice. Sometimes the flight attendant's the greatest person in the world, and sometimes they're an absolute piece of crap. It depends. One out of one out of four or one out of five serves a pre-flight drink in first class. The other ones don't give a shit. Nice, you get to fly first class. Yeah, most of the time. But so, which raises the bigger question: So, how do you? I mean, you train lots of companies. Is, you know, how do you help them instill some sort of consistency in the process so that the customer experience is <laughs> is hopefully consistently good, but at least as consistent? Well, the only way to train consistency is to ha- is to have leadership perform at a consistent level themselves. So you can't expect if if the senior management of a company is not loyal to their own people, how do you expect the person who's performing a, a basically a, a customer interface job to provide enough service to where the to where that person would be loyal to them? And the answer is, you know, there is none. Right. You know, they, they, Bank of America one day said, we're not going to lay anybody off. And then the next day, I think they laid off like 30,000 people. And, you know, who cares about that? They, they, they're a bunch of liars. And that's how they have done it. Listen, they're right here in my hometown of Charlotte. I, I hope they continue to survive. But the bottom line is they're not perceived as the most benevolent place on the planet. Now, maybe they have to be because of their size. But it all it falls down to the customer. How does the customer perceive them? Do you remember the day that the, that they tried to put uh, surcharge on on debit cards? Yeah, yeah. And one lady put a Facebook campaign together, got like a half a million people to threaten to quit. The, the, this is the example of people not getting it on the customer level. And of course, Bank of America backed down, but they lost millions of dollars in deposits and goodwill literally forever for some people. You could make an argument being a little bit greedy. A little? Well, that's trying to be nice. Yeah. Don't try to be nice. Now, I, I, this is what I want. There's a difference. You know, you live half in New York and half in San Diego. St- when you're on the phone with me, stop being in San Diego. <laughs> be in New York. Okay. There we go. Hello. And, they, you know, how's it going? They don't mean it, but they say it. Right. And, uh, have you heard the traffic report in San Diego? The roads are full. Yeah, as they are in New York, right? Yeah, we had true. Of course, I walk, of course I walk everywhere in New York. In New York, you can take a subway. Take a subway or walk, yeah. Yeah. All right, so a question for you. Let's, I want to talk about some of the most pointless arguments that we hear about in sales these days. Is, is The guy wouldn't call me back? How about that? <laughs> yeah. Like uh, this one about how far into their buyer journey the buyer is before they engage with sales. Yeah, some people say 0%, some say 67%. Does anybody really care? Does it matter? No, doesn't matter at all. I care where their kid plays t-ball. If he plays t-ball in the same league as my kid, I got a 50% better shot of making the sale. But let's get into an issue of salespeople blaming versus taking responsibility. I love that one. So I'll give you a story. So I was sitting on a train, getting ready, and it's in New York, in Penn Station, getting ready to go to, to Boston. And... 
guy, clearly a sales guy, three-piece suit, cell phone <laughs> to his ear, talking excitedly, sits down in the seat in front of me. And the only thing I hear is right at the end of the conversation, he goes, yeah, well, the buyers were just liars. <laughs> and I thought, how perfect is that? And I started imagining the whole conversation before that. It was like, yeah. clearly he had committed he was going to close something, right, to his boss. And he's on the phone with his boss who was just telling him, yeah. we'll probably rake him over the coals, right? You had committed this. Or it's the end of the It was the last day of the month, the last day of the month of the quarter. Uh, why didn't this happen? And I'm sure he had a whole page of justifications. But at the end, yeah, well, the buyers were just liars. Right. Um, when the sales guy says the customer wouldn't call me back or the customer wouldn't set an appointment with me or the customer took a cheaper price, he's blunt. Now, those are three, probably the big three of, of uh, sales objections that cannot be overcome by the normal crappy salesperson. The guy wouldn't return my call. The guy wouldn't set an appointment with me. The guy took a cheaper price. Mm-hmm. What it means, first of all, you're blaming rather than taking responsibility. The guy didn't return my call because the voicemail message that I left them sucked. Oh, now you're talking. Well, or if it's further into the deal, you've demonstrated to the customer that you're not adding any value to him. So he stopped taking your calls. So I, the guy wouldn't set an appointment with me because he didn't perceive that my product had any use in his company. Exactly. I wasn't very good at explaining it. Or the guy... Uh, took a cheaper price because I couldn't convince him that the value of doing business with me was greater than the price of the other guy. And a large, large degree of possibility that had he done a better job of qualifying the prospect up front, he may have found out earlier that that was just a barrier he wasn't going to overcome no matter what he did. Possibly. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a big guy on qualifying. I just try to like people because if I like them and they like me back, I got a better chance of closing that sale or getting them to buy, let's put it that way. I think that there's an ability for any salesperson to enhance a relationship in a way that the purchase becomes more emotional than logical. And well, I, I agree. But at this, my point was, you know, you may be selling a Bentley and they've got a Mercury budget. Yeah. It doesn't matter what you say. You're not going to be able to. You're not going to be able to convince them to spend on the the Bentley. I agree with you to a point. However, the guy that can't afford the Bentley may live next door to the guy who can. And if you treat the guy that can't afford the Bentley in a poor way, they will go back and tell their wealthy neighbor, "Don't go to this Bentley dealership. The guy's a jerk." Well, I agree 100. percent I wasn't saying you'd be rude to people, but qualifying doesn't necessarily mean you're rude. Well, that would depend on how you define qualifying. For sure. example. From San Diego as opposed to New York. Yeah. I go to buy a house. Pretty standard qualification process, isn't there? Mm-hmm. And you walk into a guy's real estate place, and uh, you know, you're looking for a home, and the guy says, do you have a home to sell? And I say, well, um, what does that have to do with this visit? Well, um, we try to help people by finding out their situation. Do you have a mortgage right now? Yeah, I do. What's your payment? None of your business. What's your payment? Like, what are you, why are you asking me questions about my wallet? I want a home. Well, I'm just trying to help you. No, you're trying to qualify me. I don't want to be qualified. I want to be helped. Right. And if you help me, I'll qualify myself. 
you know, let's take a look at homes that are, do you want to go above 500 or below 500? Well, in, <laughs> in San Diego, do you want to go above 5 million or below 5 million? <laughs> but, but the bottom line is the sales guy is so rude in speaking about things that are none of his business or her business that they just, because they know everything, especially real estate salespeople, they know everything. That's why they can't get a referral, uh, and that's why they can't get a listing, because they know everything. And, you know, for me, I just want to like people, because if I like them, they'll like me back. Yeah, well, I think, right. And I wasn't saying that you qualify in the first, I mean, if somebody qualifies just as that real estate guy did, it's their opening gambit was qualification as opposed to helping you find a home that you want then that's problematic in any field you're in. Business to business, B to C, it doesn't matter. Too many people are qualified, are, are trying to short, shorten the sales cycle by not getting to know the other person. I'm just going to leave it at that. Well, I agree. I mean, we were talking about that earlier. With, with if you go to a car dealership, it's the same damn thing. Wait, you go to, well, I was going to say, with some of the, the inside sales organizations just blasting emails out to people. And they think they're getting to know somebody by inserting, doing a mail merge, inserting their first name into the top of the email. Right. Yeah, we, well, listen, technology is getting closer to real. Do you know about the program Outstand? Outstand? O-U-T-S-T-A-N-D dot com. No, I'm going to look it up. It's an email program. Just check it out. It's really cool. So what's it do relevant to what we are just talking about? Um, it's like constant contact or... Or Mailchimp, except that it's it's good. Oh, okay. I'll check it out. So, I was going to move into the last segment of my show because we're wrapping up in time, and I've got some standard questions I ask all my guests, and I was going to pose standard questions. Okay, cool. First one is yeah. you, Jeff Gittimer. I've just been hired as the new sales VP at a company whose sales have stalled out. What right. would you do? What would you do? Your what two things would you do your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact on turning things around? I would visit my top 10 customers and I would find out why they buy from us so I could get insight from people and have non bullshit salespeople tell me which, which end is up. When you talk to the customer, they know the real truth. They know the real answer. Right. Then I would gather my salespeople around and I would ask them what they thought it would take. What's missing right now that would allow them to get from where they are to where their present goal is and I would ask them to write it to me so that I could see their writing skills and their intentions at the same time. So those two things would give me answers as to why customers bought from them to begin with. And I can actually look at my sales guys' things and see if they're complainers or if they're, right. if they're idea people, you know, whatever the circumstances. Everything would be revealed within those two pieces. Absolutely. So a question for you on the first one is, would you take... You know, if you went and visit a customer in person, would you take the salesperson? Uh, probably not. Okay. You want to get the straight scoop without them? Right. All right. Yeah, the customer's not going to throw a sales guy under the bus when the sales guy is right there. But I've seen customers go forward, reverse, forward, reverse with their bus when the sales guy's not there. <laughs> All right. Good answer. All right. So now I've got some rapid-fire questions. You can give me one-word answers or elaborate if you wish. So... When you, Jeffrey Gittimer, are out selling your own services, mm -hmm. what's your most powerful sales attribute? 
probably the fact that I'm relaxed and I know, you know, I'm the master of my product, so it's easier for me to convey the value. Um, but I think the, the best thing is people already know me because of my other outreach books and things like that. So I don't have to explain who I am. You know, let me tell you a little bit about me or let me tell you a little bit about my company. They already know that. Right. So I'm, I'm there and I'm talking about everything in terms of them and what they need. Okay. So brand and reputation. Brand, reputation, and being able to speak to the customer about their stuff, not my stuff. Right. So who's your sales role model? Oh, my gosh. Uh, probably Napoleon Hill. Okay. Jim Rohn. You know, he never sold anything from the platform, but sold millions of dollars from the back of the room. Right. So other than any of your own books, what's one book you'd recommend every salesperson read? And maybe you foreshadowed that already. How to Sell Your Way Through Life by Napoleon Hill, written in 1939. Okay. So you'd that overthink and grow rich? Yes. Okay. I mean, I, I would assume that a salesperson or that anybody would have read Think and Grow Rich in college. But the How to Sell Your Way Through Life is a very unknown book by Napoleon Hill. And that would give people a lot more insight about the selling process and still give them part of what Napoleon Hill pounds into somebody about their attitude and their capability. Okay. Great answer. All right. Last question for you. What music's on your playlist these days? Well, I don't know. Uh, you know what the best part about this is? I can tell you exactly what's on my playlist right now because I'm clicking iTunes and I'm clicking into one of my... When I set up a talk for my room, mm -hmm. I, I have set up music. So I have, do you want to know titles or just the groups? Just the groups, fine. The Who, The Wallflowers, Traffic, Tallest Man on Earth, The Students, Steve Miller Band, Steely Dan, Spoon, Split Ends, Smashing Pumpkins, The Rolling Stones, Rock Pile, and on from there. But obscure people like The Move, um, old people like Foghat, like yeah. Zeppelin. Foghat, wow. Hadn't heard that name in a while. West Coast. Yeah, you know, I, I try my best to, you know, I do Arctic Monkeys. I'll do, um, you know, I, anybody that I think gives a beat yeah. and, and can really make it happen for me, I don't care who it is. I, I want to listen to them. And you say you use that in rooms when you're giving presentations? Yeah, when I'm setting up my own stuff, I set my own musical tone inside my head. You know, I'm, I'm dancing to my own beat. Usually when you go into a room, a hotel room or some kind of conference room, you're playing some crappy music or the, the, the sound company plays what they want to hear. Right. And I ask them if they mind listening to what I want to hear. And they, they almost always say, okay. Excellent. Well, I like yep. that. You had something every decade there. There's uh, something for everybody. Oh, yeah, I don't. Um, I grew up in the 50s, and I love music, and, you know, I, I was a very, I was actually coherent in the 60s, but barely, <laughs> and, uh, you know, kept all of that flavor. Excellent. All right. Well, good. Well, thanks for being on the show today, and, and tell folks how they can connect with you and learn out more about what you do. All you have to do is go to Gittimer.com, G-I-T-O-M-E-R.com, or to the Gittimer Learning Academy Dot com where you can subscribe to my online wealth of information. And that's a great description for it. A wealth of information, lots of great books and other content. So You're again, exactly 
correct, Andy. Yes. So, and an excellent judge, I might say, an excellent well. judge. Well, I mean, I I was going through some boxes at at uh, one of my homes recently, and uh, let's see, a little red book of sales. There's three Jeffrey Gittimer books in there, so. <laughs> Uh, I can attest to the value. So anyway, anyway, thanks for being on the show. And remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. And one easy way to do that is to make this podcast accelerate a part of your daily routine, whether you listen in the commute, in the gym, or make it part of your morning sales meeting. That way you won't miss any of my conversations with top business experts like my guest today, Jeffrey Gittimer, who shared his expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your sales. So thanks for joining me. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guest, visit my website at andypaul.com.